You're listening to The Fish Dish, brought to you by Eat Wisconsin Fish, a campaign of the Wisconsin Sea Grant Program. Are you fish curious? Or are you a fish expert who wants to learn even more about Wisconsin's fisheries and cooking fish? We'll give you the latest dish on fish. Your hosts are Sharon Moen and Marie Zwickoff. Two Two friends who who have have been working working for Sea Grant seemingly forever and who know a thing or two about fish. But that's forever in a good way. Sharon runs the Eat Wisconsin Fish campaign. And Marie is a science communicator. So I'm really excited about this episode of The Fish Dish because we have Dr. Ryan Leepak with us. Ryan is a research limnologist at the Environmental Protection Agency Research Laboratory in Duluth, Minnesota. Among other things, he studies mercury in aquatic environments. He's also an avid fisherman, and he's teaching us how to make Lake Superior sushi today. If you get a moment, check out the Wisconsin Sea Grant video posted online where Ryan and his wife, Courtney, show you how to have fun making sushi. In the second fishalicious part of the show, we even try to have a competition for the best sushi with the emphasis on try. Welcome, Ryan. Can you tell us what you do at the EPA? A lot of the work I do is associated with understanding the status of the Great Lakes, and then trends. Are the Great Lakes improving or, or are they getting worse? For a whole, a whole series of metrics, we're, sometimes we're talking about thermal things like temperature. Sometimes we're talking just simply about water levels, but then we get more complex. Things like nutrients, contaminants, fish health, fish populations. Our role is to take all these pieces of information and say, what's the status of the lake and what can we do to continually improve them and not lose condition at all? You know, when we talk about fish and eating Wisconsin fish, most of us are aware of the fish consumption advisories. And I know you're an avid fisherman. Do you worry about the fish consumption advisories? Sometimes I do select where I'm going to fish because I'm looking to find um, cohorts of fish that are maybe cleaner for contaminants. An, An example of a very clean ecosystem are the Great Lakes. Right. So I only know of a couple cases of mercury poisoning. And the last one I read about was a um, person who worked on a tuna boat and he ate tuna every day for about 18 months and um, got super sick. Do you know any stories about people getting mercury poisoning from eating their fish? So what you're talking about is mercury poisoning as an acute response, Mm -hmm. something very brief, very obvious. And frankly, I've never seen that. We've heard these stories like you've just mentioned, and, and typically it's on those communities that are extremely reliant on fishes. What you're more susceptible to as a population is chronic level issues. Issues that are kind of picking at you slowly. It's kind of not so different from smoking, right? You think about someone that smoked their whole life and it increases your risk of cancer, right? Think of mercury that way too. If you continually consume fish, the cost could be something like a loss in IQ, And at that level, I have seen that. Not so much in this region, but more so when I work in regions of Africa and South America. Yeah, we had a Lake Superior conference a few years ago. And as part of it, I got my hair tested for mercury. And it was higher. My mercury levels were higher than average. Okay. And so it made me more cognizant that, oh, oh my gosh, (laughs) I have mercury in me. Because, you know, you don't, it's not something you think about every day unless you get tested for it. Absolutely. And we all do. Mm -hmm. I mean, mercury Mm -hmm. is basically everywhere. Um, It's just a matter of managing risk, right? And realizing that not all mercury in fish is equal. Smaller fish generally have less than bigger fish. And so for that chemical, that makes things very easy, Mm -hmm. right? If we were to go out fishing and we were to catch a collection of of bluegill and walleye and northern, and we were then going to feed our family, if we can, we would give the bluegill to the kiddos 
and then maybe give the bigger fish to the adults. And that's probably their preference anyway. The study I read last, you were doing work on Lake Michigan with our boss, Dr. Jim Hurley. Was that your PhD work? Or yeah, your, yeah. yeah, we started that in the master's work and then um, quickly advanced it for the PhD work. That was fun because we realized a couple things you know, early on. One, when we first started, that was when the news got really flashy for all these big beds of nasty, smelly algae washing up in Lake Michigan. And that's called Clodophora. That's not an invasive thing. It's just a naturally occurring thing that has changed from the past. And the reason it's changed is because the way nutrients cycle in Lake Michigan has changed. And that's the result of invasive mussels. So basically, they're able to capture all those nutrients and deliver them to the ground, which basically plants that nutrient seed for for the Clodophora to grow. Um, The reason we studied it is now you've got this intense recycling of nutrients, this intense recycling of contaminants, and we thought, does this matter to the mercury cycle? And lo and behold, we found it did. We found that there was more issues with mercury in the coastal region of Lake Michigan than the offshore region. Our follow-up work then said, well, what are the lake trout doing? Traditionally, we all know that lake trout are, you know, these big offshore species. You know, for all intent purposes, they are the wolves of their of their ecosystem. They're the bosses. But it still matters. Where can they find a meal and how do they get food? And these fish had to adapt when those when those mussels came in because the food that they eat disappeared. And so they had to find new food. And so doing so, they started to move inshore because there was this explosion of another invasive species the round goby. So their new diet has been transitioning to that. Wow. Yeah. So creatures do adapt and especially the wolves. (laughs) (laughs) We like the wolves wolves of the lake. That's good. That's good. Ryan, so you were in Madison when you did that research. What brought you up here to Duluth and the EPA? Yeah, great question. During our work in Madison, it became really apparent to the folks at EPA that the work we were doing was making answers that they wanted to hear. They, you know, something that provided an explanation for why our observations in fish didn't match our practices in the environment, right? We're reducing mercury in the U.S. and in Canada, and the fish aren't just precipitously falling with those reductions. And so they said, we want to continue to work on this. What they said is, why don't we start with Superior? And I, and I moved up here because, of course, it's right on the lake. It's beautiful. And why don't we do a reconstruction like Superior? Because without those invasive mussels, the story should be much clearer. And so this should be a really easy thing to do. And so we began that that adventure and quickly realized another reason why biology messes up our expectations. It's not easy. (laughs) Biology is, to to quote one of my famous advisors, it makes things fuzzy, right? (laughs) What happened was we rebuilt this, this mercury trend story. You know, we basically measured fish from 1978 to present day, expecting to see just continual decline in concentrations. And what we actually saw looked more like someone took a shotgun on the plot. And we were scratching our heads at first until we realized, hey, what about the biology? So Lake Superior doesn't have these invasive mussels to the same extent Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, etc. do. But what it does have, these other lakes don't have, is coexisting cohorts, coexisting separate populations of lake trout, each that do their own thing. Commonly, when you're out fishing, you're catching almost exclusively what's called lean lake trout. And those lake trout are basically the same version that are in all the other lakes. But here, there's also three other types, or maybe even more, that do very different things. There's these red fins kind of up by Isle Royal. There's the humpers in the east side, but most importantly, there's ciscoettes. And ciscoettes is, you know, I think it's Ojibwe, means it fries itself because these (laughs) fish are so fatty. Their lifestyles are very different. These are deep water fish that almost never see sunlight. They chase a very different prey base. 
And when we were catching those fish on accident and incorporating them into the Lean Lake Trout database, we found that they made a radically different story. And Mm. so that was actually the explanatory variable for that. And so that kind of leads us into what's happening now. We've taken very special care now to understand how biology is impacting contaminants broadly. So not just mercury, but all contaminants are affected by a fish's habits. These are individuals moving through time and space that have their own preferences. And so now what we do is try to figure out what that fish's preference is to then better understand what the contaminant story might be. That's moving us into a new new foray of contaminants, right? We can talk about all of the acronym, all the vegetable soups, all of the, what do you call it? Le- alphabet soups. Alphabet soups, thank you, <laughs> yeah. that, that you can imagine, right? We can talk about the old ones of the past, PCBs, PAHs, mm-hmm. or we can talk about the new ones forthcoming, some of these weird neonicotinoids, or most famously now, the PFOSs, right? right? And th- right. those are these you know, unique classes of chemicals that are equally ubiquitous, kind of like mercury. And so does mercury accumulate in the fat of creatures? Fish, you know, I'm wondering if, you know, the Siskiwet yeah. messed up your study because they are so fatty. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Mm-hmm. This is probably one of the largest misconceptions I've encountered. Mercury does not have a preference for fat. But you're right that the Siskiwet have more mercury. But it has, it has nothing to do with that. Mercury actually prefers to be in the proteins and the muscle tissue. So when you catch a big fatty fish and you cut off the belly thinking that you've saved yourself from that mercury, you really haven't. You've saved yourself from many other things, but not mercury. <laughs> and the reason that mercury is higher in those Siskiwet isn't because they're necessarily exposed to more mercury. It's because those fish are older. They live in these cold waters. They grow slower, but they intake about the same amount of mercury as their lean lake coastal counterparts. So you think of it, if both fishes are, are intaking one unit of mercury, the same rate, but one grows half as fast, it leads you to the false impression that the one that's growing slower is exposed to more mercury, when exactly it's not that. It, they're exposed to the same. Interesting. Mm-hmm. The Wisconsin DNR, they've started testing fish for this forever chemical, PFAS, and I know that there's been consumption advisory put on rainbow smelt because of the because of PFAS. You know, what can, what can you comment on about that and PFAS levels in different types of fish? You know, that's a, that's a real head-scratcher. To understand PFAS in fish, you have to start at the beginning. And that's that PFAS doesn't act like chemicals we've encountered in the past. That's what makes them so valuable in commerce, right? That's why rain, rain falls off your jacket. That's why your eggs don't stick to your pan, because of their unique propensity to do these things. And unlike mercury, what we just talked about, where small mouths means less and bigger mouths means more, that's called magnification. You're, you're obtaining the chemical from what you eat. PFAS seem to work a little bit different. They seem to work directly as interaction between the fish and the water they reside. Not all of them do this, but mostly that's the story. And for whatever reason, lake trout are lower and and smelt are higher. And that's actually a subject of research for this summer for us. What we suspect it is, is it's related to fish's habits. And it's right back to biology. We've got these big lake trout that exist in the deep part of the water. PFASs are surfactants, which means kind of like oil on water, they like to sit on top. While smelt, they're kind of in the middle of the water column and often eat a lot of little things and reside, at least in proximity, closer to that scum layer of PFASs. The scum layer. (laughs) You can't literally see them, but it's trying to paint a visual for you guys. Um, And so you can imagine a scenario then, if the only way you get it is by swimming in that water, and if that water is a very thin layer in the top of Lake Superior, the closer you are in proximity to that, the more likely you are to take it up. 
That's just a hypothesis. That's what we're go- that's what we call that, and we're going to test it this summer. And hopefully, if we come back to this next year, we can talk about hey, here's why the smelts are higher, and here's how we can improve that scenario. I'm just going to take a a moment here and say I love science and the, and what it can teach us about our world and the scientific method of of asking a question and then methodically finding the answer. So thanks for all the work that you guys are doing <laughs> over there at the lab, so we can feel confident about eating our fish. And speaking of eating fish, so you and your wife Courtney enjoy cooking together and friendly competitions is and that's kind of how we got here today is because we were so intrigued by your couple's competition for sushi rolls that we wanted to try it in our fishalicious section of a show. Yes, yeah, so we're gonna head on from the studio up which is up on the second floor of my house down to the kitchen and uh, we'll cook us up some sushi. All right. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Ryan, there seems to be some misconceptions out there about sushi. What exactly is sushi? So I grew up probably like a lot of people, and I thought, sushi, gross. I grew up in central Wisconsin. Sushi, gross. Raw fish and rice, definitely not for me, right? But actually, sushi can be very dynamic and, and, and changes a lot, kind of like pizza. I mean, you, you've got your meat lovers, you've got your chicken alfredo, and those are very different types of pizzas. Sushis... You can have raw fish sushis, you can have cooked fish sushis, you can have cooked shrimp sushis, you can have steak sushis, you can have veggie sushis, right? And sushi just means rice roll, vinegared rice roll. Often when I encounter people who are like, sushi gross, I challenge them to think about it because if you don't think rice is gross, you don't think vinegar is too gross, then you might actually like sushi, you just haven't found the right kind for you yet. Even today when we make sushi, we're going to kind of make it like a little, maybe like a little contest or kind of like making a pizza. I like really spicy stuff, and I, I don't think you like spicy quite as much no, as I do. I'm not spicy person. Yeah, so we make two different kinds, and we can test each other's and just get creative with it. Like I said, it's kind of like that pizza night with your family. The kids maybe like making a pepperoni pizza with something goofy on it, and the parents, they want a really mushroomy pizza. That's kind of the same thing, except we're going to make some sushi. And so today, we have some green peppers, some red peppers. Sharon's cutting them up. Apple slices... Red cabbage, mango, lime, mushrooms. What's that white? What Onion. Is? Onions. Onions. Yeah. Avocados. It's and so colorful. <laughs> yes. Uh, and some ginger. And then sprouts. And for the meat, we have some smoked white fish and some walleye that is cooked. Not mm-hmm. <laughs> not raw. We're not doing the raw. So thing something here. I'm, I'm sad we don't have here is. The row. Cisco row that's in season about right now. So Cisco, we're running from November, December, and it's over now. But there's all this row that we could eat here, but we export most of it because we haven't developed a, a taste for, for egg row in Wisconsin so much. And I'd like to promote that this next year. It's like we should start eating more of our, our fish row here in the United States. Do you eat it, Ryan? Yeah, I've cured my own brown trout uh, row. And it's oh, wow. it's really good. It's it's got a little snap to it. It's it's I would say kind of like a citrusy. It has zero fish flavor, zero oil fish flavor. It's really simple to cure. It's just harder to pick from the web that it exists within. That's called the skein. So you pull that pull the the eggs out of there is the hardest part. But after that, curing it's super easy. So you don't waste any parts of the fish that you. No, we do we do a lot of creative things. Basically, the innards are the only part we don't use. Often, if we get a good, into a good uh, mix of fish, we'll use the carcasses and make stock. 
fish stock is is supreme for chowders for miso soup that's great i love the idea of eating the whole fish yeah <laughs> like like yeah. just not wasting i mean yeah. i think that's part of ethical living also is like right. you, you figure out how to use stuff yeah, absolutely. And it's culturally identifying with a lot of people that live here, right? There's a lot of Swedes and individuals from that whole area of Europe, at least by heritage. And traditionally, they do a lot of unique things. You know, they're eating lower fish. Uh, uh, whitefish livers, I think, comes from that. that. That concept comes from there. And in fact, you're talking about exporting eggs. And when we were in Sweden three years ago, I had Lake Superior caviar for the first time in my life. Oh, wow. In Sweden? Yeah. We didn't realize it at the time, but the Swedes love the herring from, from the November bites. And so in the North Shore, they catch a lot of that. And if you try to buy it, it's impossible to find. If you do find it, you're going to pay like, I don't know, $30, $40, $50 a pound. It's extremely expensive. It's like gold of the lake. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Great Lake's gold. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And then we have some sauces. We have tiger sauce. We have sriracha. I made some eel sauce, which doesn't actually have eel in it. (laughs) It has tamari and sugar and dry sherry. That provides a little sweetness and saltiness. First, Sharon tries her hand at making sushi. Ryan instructs her on how to handle the dried seaweed sheets used to wrap the sushi. Then it's my turn. Smooth side. Uh-huh. You want the smooth side down. Okay. It's a lot stronger. And then there's a long side and a fat side. I do this way, the, the fatter of the two sides. Every time you roll it, it gets thicker, right? Oh, right. It's already mm-hmm. enough. Oh, okay. So usually what I'm doing, I'm just putting, I don't know, maybe a little over a quarter cup to start um, of rice. And you're kind of just aiming to get a nice layer of about one to two grains thick. I mean, it seems like it's so complicated, but once you... Once you get break in. it down, yeah. it's it's like in every it's like street food, right? Over yeah. in Asia. Yeah, or, or um, that's a great point. Or, or you know, if you've ever been to like Mexico City and you see all the taco stands, uh-huh. like there's there's no magic behind those. They're just <laughs> sometimes simplicity. Just let this let the you know let the ingredient take care of it for you. Right, right. When I look at sushi in the grocery store longingly mm-hmm. but then i read the ingredients and it's got so many preservatives that's a great point that i don't buy it but i never thought about making it myself <laughs> i know i never, I never have either until uh, ryan brought this fun game up right, right? of like who whose sushi roll is the best <laughs> the other thing that's really helpful sometimes is just to leave a strip at the back end uncovered because you can use that then to seal it mm-hmm. you know just get a little wet mm-hmm. and you can get it sealed well, I'm just going to do something crazy right away. and like, You can reel me in after this. <laughs> that makes sense. Oh, he's going for the sriracha. Yeah, so we got smoked whitefish. I like to put a fair bit of fish in so that you get that flavor. And then when I think what pairs well with smoky, we're going to make like a... Let's see. We're going to do the apples right away. Just because I like those. Mm. Apples. We're going to do apples, onions... I think jalapeno. Do you like the apples because you grew up on an apple farm? Yeah, I'm biased. <laughs> it probably adds only like a small fraction of flavor. Uh-huh, but but I, it's like I apples. Just, yep, yep. <laughs> you got to support that, right? Well, yeah. And we make all sorts of weird apple dishes, actually. So you can call this a uh, Wisconsin sushi roll. <laughs> yep, yep. Neat. There. And it looks like it's sealed actually better than mine. It's my first sushi roll ever. Yeah, I think Good that was job. just fine. So I'm doing walleye and apples and lime and mushrooms and maybe avocado. That'd be different. Yeah. Or would that be too big? No, you're good. 
Not the cod was forgiving too, because it kind of fills spaces. Oh right, and it mushes smushy. <laughs> yeah, the fish does that too. So those are your two helpful. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So then I just roll it. Yep. Okay. So you get that over the top, the cap over the top, mm-hmm. and you kind of tuck it in a little bit, and then it'll be just fine. Now for the eating part. Who will win this friendly sushi competition? So there's a little mm. bit of wasabi going on. What do you this think, This is the smoked fish and apple and avocado one. I think maybe I made this one. I like that. Mm-mm-mm. I'm getting a big burst of wasabi right now. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Mm. They're clearing out the sinuses. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, I just had one of the smoked fish one. Uh, mm-hmm. varieties and yum with some mango in it. Wasabi is strong. Oh, I got one of the ginger pieces. Oh, nice. Lucky. Mm. I just had a really yummy one. Mm-hmm. Let's see if I can undo It's probably mine. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. it kind of like has sriracha in it, has color, and the walleye. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you can tell if there's smoked fish in there for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. So prior to. Eating this one, the smoked one of the smoked fish ones. Maybe this one, yeah. yeah, was like, oh, the smoked fish came out. I mean, they're also different. It's super easy, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if if one of them turns out bad, whatever, like it's it's still you know palatable, right? Mm-hmm. So you just get creative. Why not? So low risk, potentially high reward. Right. Exactly. Scenario. I think the hardest part is remembering who made what. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> I'm, I'm having seconds. Yes, yeah. please do. I'm, I'm going right. <laughs> you first. Hey? Well, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to. Absolutely, to this be... is part of my work day. I'm I'm jealous that you guys do this more often than I do. <laughs> we made the delicious mistake of intermixing our sushi rolls, so we couldn't tell who made what. But it seems we were all winners with our sushi combinations. For more information and Ryan's sushi recipe and video, visit Eat Wisconsin Fish on the web at eatwisconsinfish.org, plus Twitter and Facebook. Thanks to Ryan Liepak for sharing his expertise about mercury and sushi with us. And thank you for listening. On so did see. On so did see.